0: I had almost forgotten how exciting it was, what you guys experience every day here at Wesley. 16, 17 years ago, I was a student here, finishing up my art degree, um, in charge, interning campus outreach. Every Thursday, go down, preach at the Tate Center, uh, pass out Bibles on Tuesdays, and I just, once you get out of this, things seem like they start to slow down a little bit in churches that you go into. And what you will may be tempted to do is try to recreate the intensity and the high that you're feeling during your Wesley days, which is very real and very powerful and amazing. And then when you don't see that in churches, maybe get burnt out or get cynical or kind of hop from church to church looking for the next big thing. And what I want to encourage you to do is take everything that you're experiencing in your time at Wesley Take it and let it power you throughout your life. Let it remind you when you go out into other churches, when you go out into other ministries of just what the power of God consists of, and then take that to those churches. Because Wesley's to raise up generations of leaders, and it's doing that, and it's done that for 20, 25, 30 years. And so it's really cool that Clay asked uh, some of us to be able to come back and share. And I remember my intern days uh I, I had some pretty neat stuff happen, like testimony-wise. I mean, I saw some crazy stuff. And I grew up Methodist preacher's kid, so I kind of believed in it. Like, yeah, this stuff's real, but it eh, doesn't happen much. And <clears throat> in my time at Wesley, so I started to see all these amazing things. But through that, what God led me into continually, or led me back to continually, was root it in Scripture. Root it in the Word. Um, have something that you can weigh everything through. Not to be like the heresy police that goes around and says, well, that's not from the Lord because I can't find chapter and verse or or anything like that. But to let scripture be your anchor that holds you firm and doesn't allow the enemy to come in and scramble you up and mix you up and get you chasing things that aren't the core and the real of the kingdom of God. And so one of the things that my ministry is devoted to, my ministry is called Disciple Dojo, and it's uh, jmsmith.org. Please hop online, find me on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Connect with me because I love it. My ministry is a discipleship ministry to help people like you and people like others in your churches to equip them to wield the sword. That's why it's called Disciple Dojo. The dojo is a martial arts call. You go, you train, you smack each other with swords, you get better. That's what the ministry that God's called me to is all about, and that's why I'm excited to be able to come and talk to you about uh, something that I'm really passionate about, which is taking the Bible out of the seminary, out of the pulpit, and giving it to the rest of us. Giving it to everyone. Yesterday, we talked about the importance of understanding the big picture of Scripture. We talked about the danger of learning it in soundbite format or or devotional daily format. Devotionals are fine. Daily reading's fine. You can even read the message if you want to. You're not going to go to hell. That's great. But intense study Taking in Scripture, letting it become part of your life so that eventually you filter everything through the same worldview that Jesus and the apostles held naturally. That's the goal of studying Scripture. That's what God wants for you to do. He wants to take the passion that you have for healings and exorcisms and miracles and social justice and reaching the campus and revival and all of that stuff, pour the same passion into understanding Leviticus, reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Wrestling with the depression of Psalm 88. He wants you to take that and apply the same amount to the study of Scripture. And in order to do that, there's some things we have to do when we come to the Bible. We have to say, what is this book exactly? Most of you have one sitting in front of you, or you have it on your phone, or your tablet, or somewhere near you. What is the Bible? There's a quote by a guy named E.W. Bullinger. He was a theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He put together a big, thick book. Um, It was figures of speech used in the Bible. If you ever can't sleep at night, get the book off the shelf and start reading it. It's the most boring thing you'll ever read in your life. However... It's a syntax book. He goes through and analyzes every figure of speech in the entire Bible in its Greek and its Hebrew context and gives its Latin and its Greek classification so that Bible students can know when there's a figure of speech being used, when there's a pattern being used, etc., etc. Super nerdy, super geeky, super important to studying Scripture. The quote from the preface of that book is this one, and it's my favorite quote on the nature of the Bible. Now, Bullinger had some wacky beliefs, by the way. I don't endorse everything he taught. He had some weird end times views. So... Just take this quote for what it's worth. He says, The Word of God may, in one respect, be compared to the earth. All things necessary to life and sustenance may be obtained by scratching the surface of the earth. But there are treasures of beauty and wealth to be obtained by digging deeper into it. So it is with the Bible. All things necessary to life and godliness lie upon its surface for the humblest saint... But beneath that surface, there are great spoils which are found only by those who seek after them as for hid treasure. What Bullinger's saying is the Bible, think of it like the earth. You can live. You can die. You can work. You can have children, marry, job. You can do everything you want on the surface of the earth. and People have for thousands and thousands of years. But if you want treasure, if you want the stuff that's worth a lot, you dig. If you want gold... If you want diamonds, in our day if you want oil, whatever it is you want, you got to dig. Now, you can live your whole life without those things. But there's a reason that companies invest billions and billions and billions of dollars in digging and drilling in the ground. Because they know that it pays off for them to do that. And those billions and billions that they spend are multiplied almost infinitely if they can get at the treasure that's down below. And it's just like that with reading scripture. You can go your whole life and just know John 3.16. You can live and you can uh, can do ministry and you can die a godly saint who the Lord loves and delights in and is well pleased with if you never know anything other than just the very basics. That can happen. However, God has set it up. If you dig, you will find even more. If you go deeper, God will meet you there. And he leaves it up to you. He leaves it up to you to determine, how deep do I really want to go? Do I want to stay on the surface in terms of scripture? Do I want to stay on the surface, have a few verses I like, do a study from Ephesians every now and then, read a psalm every now and then, maybe read some of the gospels? Or do I want to go deep? Do I want to find the hidden treasures that are tucked away in books like Nahum and Habakkuk and the Song of Solomon and all of these obscure, Revelation, the scary book. Do I really, if I, am I willing to dig? And what God promises, and bullings your nails in this quote, I think, if you dig, you're going to find treasure. And it will rock your world. Second Peter, <clears throat> Peter's writing near the end of his life. He's talking about scripture. And he says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, talking about salvation and everything that comes in the gospel, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Peter, in his last letter warns the church, look, you are going to encounter people and they will twist scripture. They do it even with Paul's writings. Peter's talking about his contemporary and calling his writings scripture, which is just mind-blowing in and of itself. Remember, Paul never met Jesus before his resurrection. And Peter's calling Paul's writings scripture. But he says Paul's writings are hard to understand. Now, Peter says Paul's writings are hard to understand. Peter, the guy that walked on water, Peter, the guy that ate fish beside the Sea of Galilee with Jesus after his resurrection, Peter, the guy that got a 40-day intensive Bible study from Jesus along with the other disciples when Jesus came back from the dead, that same Peter says that some of what Paul's writings is hard read, what, what Paul writes is hard to understand. So when you read the Bible and you think, I just don't get this, relax, you're in good company. And Peter said that. If Peter said that, then that gives you permission to not be able to understand everything in Scripture and to be a little okay with that. However, he warns here that people will twist and will distort. And so we don't just say, well, I can't understand it, so I'm just going to sing and love Jesus. No. There's the call over and over and over and over in Scripture. So yourself approved. Be wise. Be diligent in your study. Dig in. Drink from the fountain of scripture. All of these exhortations, all of these these commands that were given, they are for not just our own spiritual edification, but for the sake of all of the people in the world who are being led astray by these destructive heresies. If you don't know the true, then you're going to be overwhelmed by the false. And if you don't know what God actually said, then you are subject to those who sound authoritative who tell you what God actually said. To the degree that you don't know. And if you look at all of the in, the, in the evangelical charismatic world of which we are a part. If you look at all the excesses, all the heresies, all the buffoonery, all of the stuff that goes on in the name of Jesus that's not from Jesus. You can trace every single bit of it back to some people somewhere not knowing scripture in order to weigh what they're being taught. And all it takes is a charismatic leader, or a winsome personality, and someone who's good at persuading others, and boom, you've got a call. And so that's the challenge that I want to leave and I want to share with you guys, is this is your lifeline, this is your anchor. doesn't mean that you have to find everything chapter and verse, or you just dismiss it. No, listen to what God's saying, be excited about what God's doing, but keep anchored, keep tethered. A professor of mine at seminary, he's a professor of preaching in Old Testament. And he would always say, you preach with one finger in the air, or the congregation, and one finger in the text. Keep in your place. And you preach, and when this finger gets tired of pointing, put it on the text and start pointing with this finger. And that was his way of saying, stay with scripture. Everything you do, filter it through that lens. Because that's the way the Holy Spirit designed the body of Christ. Jesus came some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, and teachers. And just as he's called people to do miracles, he's called other people to write boring books about figures of speech in the Bible. And we all benefit together corporately as a body. And that's a whole other sermon, so I would want to move on. What about the Bible? Let's look at some things that people think about the Bible that may not be exactly true. They're going to be these are these are common understandings of the Bible that you're going to come across, or maybe that you hold yourself, and there's a kernel of truth to them. But that kernel gets twisted a lot of ways. First one, the Bible is it a good book? You hear it a lot. It's the good book. Well, the good book says, um, if I were to ask you what are some good books, and you can't say the Bible. You would, when I teach this in churches, ask people, name your favorite books. And they're always, you know, some people are very avant-garde, and they say classics, Pride and Prejudice, and, you know, Gone with the Wind, and all these other ones. And some people say, you know, Tom Clancy movies, or if some people are honest, they'll say, ah, trashy romance novels, whatever. But regardless, they name all their favorite books. Mine's Watership Down, for the record. Fantastic book. Go read it. And if I ask them, what makes it a good book? And they think about it for a while, and I say, have you ever stayed up late and couldn't put it down? Because you wanted to see what happens next? Yeah. Um, Have you ever found yourself remembering and and wondering, um, going back and rereading? Because you're like, oh, that was a detail that I missed. That's really cool. Yeah. Does it flow? Does the action move along? Is it very descriptive? All of these things that make something a good book. And then I say, does that, if you're honest, does that describe the book of Deuteronomy? Or the book of Proverbs? Does that describe the letter to Philemon. Does that describe Revelation? Does that describe Leviticus, Second Chronicles? And if people are honest, they say, well, no, I kind of get bored when it starts doing the genealogies and I skip. Well, the point is, we have standards of what we think a good book should be in the world. And the Bible doesn't always fit those standards. It's still good. That's the kernel of truth. It is the good book. It is good and great. But not in the way that we sometimes expect. So if we set up a false expectation in ourselves or in those we're trying to minister to, of what the Bible should be, and then they start reading Judges or they start reading Joshua, and they're like, "Oh, you know, kill the whole city. Oh, I don't like this. You know, all the. Ah, oh, this isn't a good book. There must be something wrong with me. I just don't get it. Condemnation, self-defeat, frustration. So be aware of that. Yes, the Bible is the good book, but not in the way that we normally mean. Some people say, well, the Bible is the all-time bestseller. So more copies than any other book in the world. And that's true. And some people even say, that's how you know it's from the Lord. No other books come close. Things to keep in mind. The Bible had a big head start on every other book. First book ever printed on the printing press, the Gutenberg Bible. There aren't organizations that are worldwide that are devoted entirely to buying copies of Shakespeare and giving them away freely to people on street corners. There aren't whole ministries, buildings that buy hundreds of copies of whatever novel is hot at the moment and give them away. But yet people do that with the Bible. So saying it's the all-time bestseller, it is, but it's because Christians are the ones who see the worth and the value in it, and they're buying it to give away. It's not like it's just hopping off the shelves because people are so excited about buying it. It's an intentional effort by the people of God. Is it life's instruction manual? You hear this one a lot. Basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. And you think, oh, okay, hmm, I'm struggling with self-doubt. Let me go to the chapter on self-doubt. Where is the chapter on self-doubt? I can't find it. You know, oh, I'm struggling with sexual purity. Where is the chapter on, well, there's a song here, but, whoa, that's racy. Um, I don't know. Where is the chapter? I'm wondering which job I should take. Lord, show me the job I should take. Bam. Uh, I will save you from the hands of the wicked. Okay. All right, thank you, Jesus, and I'll go figure it out. <clears throat> the, if the Bible is life's instruction manual, the Bible is a terrible instruction manual. It really is. A good instruction manual has bullet points. It has an appendix where you look up your problem, like you have to change a spark uh, uh, fuse in your car. You get the instruction manual out, look up changing a fuse, page 87, turn to page 87, step-by-step directions, and it has pictures this is fantastic, change the fuse, I'm on my way, done. There is almost nothing like that in the Bible. Closest you'll get is the book of Proverbs. That's the closest you'll get. And that's just all things being equal, this is how it should generally go type wisdom. So we want to be careful. When we start trying to say the Bible is life's instruction manual, again, that sets up a false expectation, that sets up confusion, or even spiritual condemnation when we don't get it. And we rack ourselves, oh, God, show me, show me, show me in Scripture, show me in Scripture. And sometimes he does. God does condescend to speak to us in so many different ways. But it's not the design of Scripture. It's not how it was written. It wasn't written to just be your life's instruction manual. Is it a love letter from God? It's God's love letter to me. I read it and I feel so loved. Unless you're reading Judges. Unless you're reading Joshua. How many people have written a love letter? Kind of romantic group. How many people have received the love letter? Okay, you guys. February relationships. Good that you're in that. Um, If you've written a love letter or if you've received a love letter, how many of those letters have contained detailed instructions for splitting open, gutting, and burning up an animal? Not many. One. Okay. (laughs) She's a keeper. How many of talked up stories where a guy says, you can marry my daughter if you bring me back 50 of the enemy's foreskins? Not too romantic. The Bible has both of those in it. And many, many other things. The point is, again, if it's a love letter, it's a really bad love letter. It's a really weird love letter. Does it contain love? Does it tell us God's love for us? Yes, but only if we see the bigger story as we looked at yesterday. Only if we glimpse what God's trying to do to show his love. Is it the Word of God, capital W? This is of all these, this is the one that contains the most truth. In one sense, yes. In another sense, no. I say that before you get the heresy rotten fruit out to throw at me. What I say that because the Bible itself tells us what the Word of God is. It says in its pages, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible is not the capital W Word of God. Jesus, the Lagos, is the capital W Word of God. The Bible contains the words that tell us about the Word of God. And if we don't maintain that distinction... We can fall into Bibliolatry or the Trinity plus one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Holy Bible. The Bible is the words of God to us. Now, shorthand, you could say, is it the word of God? Yeah. But know that Jesus is the word of God. Lastly, is the Bible an often confusing collection of ancient documents? Of all of these descriptions, this is the one I think is the most honest and the most accurate, as I think Peter would agree. The Bible is often confusing, and it is a collection of ancient documents. How ancient? What do I mean? Let's look at some facts. Here's some things that you may or may not know. Bible, the word Bible, literally, from the Greek word biblia, or biblion, or biblios, depending on the gender you're using, means books. These are the books that's what Bible means. Shorthand way of saying these are the books. These are the books that the people of God have deemed important and authoritative. There's 66 books in our Bibles. In the Protestant Bibles that we use, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The Bible is not a book, it's a library. The Bible is not a book, it's a library. That has huge implications for how you see it. Think of the Bible not as much as picking up a book as of going over to the library on campus because that's what you're doing when you read it. There's, uh, if you're Catholic, if you came from a Catholic background, there's a few other books. You don't have to worry about this. We won't get into it much. But there's, they have what's called the Deuterocanonical, which means secondary scripture, or the Apocryphal books. Those are some books that took place during the Testaments, before Jesus came on the scene. But after the last Hebrew prophets were writing, they were originally written in Greek, by Jews, in Egypt, in exile. And they're seen as good history books. They tell some cool stuff. They're very interesting. Jesus read them. His apostles read them. So you can read them, too. Uh, But they were never seen as scripture in the fullest sense, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Testament is another word for covenant. So your Bible, and if you were here yesterday, we talked about this in detail. Your Bible consists of two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Sinai Covenant, or the Abrahamic Covenant, and the Messianic Covenant. Covenant just means binding agreement. A covenant is a binding agreement that's publicly made and legally enforceable. That's what the Bible contains. The one that we know of, that we're most familiar with today in our culture. Anybody know? Marriage. Yeah. Uh, marriage is a covenant. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors. At least. At least 40 different authors. How many people are in this room right now, Clay? About 75? somewhere okay so like this side of the room you guys are uh, this group let's say you guys all decided we're going to write a book all right and each of you took a section of it that's what we're talking about with scripture 40 different authors at least had a hand in writing it it takes place on three different continents the bible takes place on three entirely different continents africa asia europe the Bible was written down over a period of about 1500 years. Now the books, the stories go back much further than that, but when it was actually written from when the first Hebrew letters put, were put on parchment until the last amen was put on Revelation, about 1400 BC to around 90 AD, give or take. Now think about that. What was happening 1500 years ago? What was happening in the year, was it 515? It would be 1,500 years ago. Think about that. The Roman Empire was on its last legs or pretty much done for. Vikings were doing Viking things up in Viking land. Um, Plagues were going rampant. America was entirely indigenous. No explorers had set sail across. Think about that. Now imagine a book that gets started written then and that just got finished yesterday. Think about the span that that would embrace. Think about the rise and the fall of empires and cultures. When you start to say phrases like, well, in Bible days, which ones? Which Bible days? 1,500 years of time from when it was written. It's a massive work. And it was originally written in three different languages. Hebrew, some parts in Aramaic, which is like a, a, a common language of the ancient Near East. Like you'd speak Hebrew, they'd speak a Babylonian dialect, but you both could understand each other if you spoke Aramaic. So Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Three different languages. So look at this. 40 different authors, three different continents, 1500 years, three different languages. If a book like that was ever produced in such a manner, it, you would expect it to be completely illegible. You would expect it not to make sense. There would be, there'd be so many cultures conflicting. There would be so many... It just It's mind-boggling, but yet the Bible tells, as we saw yesterday, one coherent story, and it's so beautifully interrelated. This is the graphic from yesterday. Ask me later uh, if you want to know what it is. It's entirely related. The chapters deal with one another. They reference each other. There is a divine hand at work in compiling and creating this thing we call the Bible. In 2 Timothy, we read, in fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. And that's a literal translation of Theopneustos. God-breathed. And some translations will say inspired. That's what it means. To inspire means to fill with breath. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to get equipped, if you want to get powered up in ministry... Should you go and just get prayed for? You should get prayed for, but you shouldn't just get prayed for. At the same time, you should be grounded in Scripture. This is what Paul says is able to make us wise, to keep us from being deceived, and it's God-breathed. God-breathed. What does that mean? What does inspired mean? That's why it's the Bible is one grand tale despite it being, well, Inspire. This is a definition from Carl Henry. He was an early theologian, contemporary of Billy Graham in the 1900s. And he said, Inspiration is that supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit, whereby the sacred writers were divinely supervised in their production of Scripture, being restrained from error and guided in the choice of words they used consistently, with their disparate personalities and their stylistic peculiarities. In other words, what Henry's saying, inspiration, the Christian doctrine of inspiration, does not mean that God just took over someone and they just started writing and they were his divine stenographer. Or they were his, he was just dictating, like, hey, write this. And they're just like, oh, I don't know what I'm writing, but it's pretty awesome. That's what Muslims believe about the Quran. If you have Muslim friends, and I hope you do, Ask them, and they'll tell you that's how the Quran was given. But that's not what Christians have ever believed about Scripture. If you talk with Muslims, if you do cross cultural evangelism, it's helpful to know that so you aren't talking past each other in terms of what you think Scripture should be. What Scripture is, is <clears throat> God inspires original authors, God inspires these people with Paul, Peter, Moses. Uh, the, the, whoever wrote the Song of Solomon, any of those things, he inspires them, and they were moved by the Spirit, and they write what they have to say. And in the process, lo and behold, that is also what God wants his people to hear. So God that wanted us to read Colossians created the world in such a way that a man who would write Colossians would be born and come on the scene in the early first century. God ordains it sovereignly. It's a very mystical, it's, it's a very spirit-inspired, the, 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 spirit word, the word for spirit in Hebrew is wind or breath. It, it's very fluid, it's very dynamic, and that's how Scripture is given to us is this inspiration, and through the work of the Spirit, the church as a community has weighed and has heard the voice of God speaking through these texts, and now we have the final product of that, the original documents that they or their scribe wrote. This is what inspiration means. When somebody says the Bible is inspired... What they mean is that God breathed into the process of creating and filling and illuminating people to speak and to write or to preach and record his words for his people as a whole. And only those words that those original authors wrote can be said to be inspired. No modern translation is inspired. No copy of a copy is inspired. None of that. doctrine of inspiration applies to the original texts by the original authors. Now, there's a whole section I do in in, in Bible for the rest of us, the small group study that we have, um, that's available right now for 40 bucks. Uh, That's actually true. But there's a whole series that we do on that where we talk about, okay, well, how do we know what the original text was? How do we know know, that Paul really did write this? How do we know that? There's manuscript variants. What's that all about? I read a book by Bart Ehrman. He said there's 250,000 discrepancies in the manuscripts. That's more words than there are in the Bible, et cetera, et cetera whole section that deals with that. What I want to say is the Bibles that you have in your hands, on your phone, on your tablet, if they're a modern translation, they are overall an accurate reflection of the original inspired words of God. And you can be confident in them. Now, you can't be arrogant in them. You have to be humble. You have to realize that they are translations, not the originals. But there is, there, there, everything needed for salvation is contained in almost every decent Bible translation out there. However, when you start to dig, and you go for the treasure, you start to realize God originally wrote this thing in different languages. These words that I'm reading were not originally written in 21st century North American English. And there are shades of meaning and shades of nuances that are in the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic, that can't really be fully expressed in the English language because we don't have words for them, or we have too many words, and the Hebrew just had one or two, and we translate them differently. So every Bible that you have, every English Bible you have, is in a translation, and every translation is an interpretation. Every translation is an interpretation. Now I didn't mean that. Mean every translation is a bad interpretation. Most of them are very good interpretations. But every translation of the Bible you read is an interpretation. And to the degree that you don't know the biblical languages is the degree to which you will be subject to those who do. And that's just something we all realize. I mean, you're reading English Bibles because people translated them, and those people are competent in the text, and they understand the languages, and they understand what they're translating into. And it's, and it's, a, it's a very... It's amazing. It's a ministry of God. I had a roommate in seminary in Massachusetts, and I had just come from Wesley. I had just come from here. So I'm like preaching on campus and apologetics and praying for people and all this really cool ministry stuff. I had a roommate who's a biblical languages major. We were talking about what we wanted to do, ministry. What would be your ideal ministry? I don't even remember. Mine was something like, like I don't even know, something to, so apologetics, preaching, speaking, theology, something and we asked him, what would your ideal ministry He said, I want to be a professor at a small Christian college that can teach a class or two, but spend the most time sitting in my office deciphering Hebrew manuscripts. And I said, that's the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. Way to be salt and light. And, uh, and got a big gut check from the Spirit. Just realized, you know what? In about 15 years, 20 years... I'm going to be preaching from the Bible that he translated. I'm going to be relying on the textual work that he did in those dusty libraries with a magnifying glass, comparing ancient Torah scrolls to find out whether that's a Yod or a Vav or a Kometz or any of these other Hebrew letters that you may or may not know. I'm going to be dependent on that. And so is every other Christian in the world. It's a spirit inspired ministry. Bible translation. Some of you may go into it. Some of you may go to Weakliff or or some of these uh, ministries that that translate the Bible into native languages. And you may feel a calling to this. Don't ever let anyone tell you that it's not as sexy as anything like a deliverance ministry or a healing ministry or a prayer 24-hour prayer room. No. You sitting there translating the Bible into a language for somebody so they can have it in their own native tongue is a move of the Holy Spirit. And every Bible you see on the shelf, every time you pick up your Bible, you're picking up the fruit of lives that have labored in order to make it available to you in a language that makes sense to you. So when you go to the store and you look, oh, there's all these Bibles. Which one should I use? Well, well let me just real quick about how translations work. Basically, two schools of thought when translating any text from one language to another. Thought for thought. Word for word. Word for word is, I want to capture the exact words that they're saying, and I want to know which words they are using, and I'll say it in this language. Thought for thought is, I want to know what they're saying, and then I want to communicate it in the receptor language as clearly as possible. Easy example is Spanish. How do you ask somebody what their name is in Spanish? se Or something like that. Um... There's a lot of ways you could ask, but typically, you know, ¿Cómo se llama? Whatever. Literally, that doesn't mean what's your name. Literally, it doesn't. It means, like, how do you call yourself or something like that. But that is the Spanish equivalent of the English term, the English phrase, what's your name. You See what I mean? There's a, there's a middle gap there. So you have the literal Spanish. You have what that's conveying, the meaning. And then you have putting it in English. That's what goes on with every verse of your Bible. There's choices that are made by translators. And every Bible you have is somewhere on this spectrum of trying to be word for word or trying to be thought for thought. And you know what? They're both valid ways of translating the Bible. They're both good. People ask me when I teach on the Bible a lot, like, well, what's, what's the best translation? None. Well, what Bible do you use? The Greek and The Hebrew. Well, I don't know Greek and Hebrew. What Bible should I use? Well, you should have a couple. The reason is it makes a difference. Here's 1 Corinthians 7, 36. Five different translations. This is, how, this is, this is an example of why it matters. <clears throat> New American Standard. Actually, let me get somebody else to read these, just so I can take a sip of water. Five readers. Let me get five people just read it one after the other. New American Standard, King James, New Revised, NIV, NLT, just one after the other. Go. Okay. Ooh, same verse. The same Greek words underlie all of that. All of those translations. Anybody notice a big difference? <laughs> if you're reading the New American Standard, you're thinking, "I need to call social services." because this man is having trouble acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter. And that's a no-no. If you read the New Living Translation, you think, oh, it's about a guy that's just really excited about marriage and can't wait, right? Two completely different things. So the question, which one's right? Well, they're both right in what they're actually trying to do. Because the way you say fiancé is the term that is also translated virgin daughter. But it's someone else's virgin daughter. So if you're engaged, your fiance is your virgin daughter of her father, right? So they're, they're, they're all right. They're all accurate in as what they're trying to do. The New American Standard is a very word-for-word literal. It tries to be as literal as possible, even when it, when it reads weird or could be misinterpreted, like here. But it's still right. New Living tries to say, let me boil down the meaning and explain it and put it in modern English. And all the other translations fall somewhere in between. So don't buy into Bible snobbery. If somebody says, wow, the King James is the only Bible. No, it's not. You know, well, I think the New American Standard, well, it's a good Bible, but it's not, you know, I'm an ESV person. No, well, okay, but, you know, you realize they are all attempts at e- explaining the message ...to you in a language you can understand. And 400 years ago, the King James was a pretty good shot at it. It was a pretty good way of making clear. Now, none of us speak Victorian English. So the King James is the least helpful Bible to study from. Because it's not our language anymore. Uh, So just be aware of that. Should we take the Bible literally... This is a question that you get if you speak to people about scripture and, and you know, it comes up a lot. Will you take your Bible literally? Um, well, that's like asking, do you take the library on campus literally? Well, the reference section you probably should. The poetry section, probably not. The cartoon section, probably not. It depends on what part of the Bible you're reading. You don't just de- decide beforehand, I'm going to take the Bible Literally. I mean, that sounds really good and passionate and and God-loving, but it's not. Because sometimes God communicates real truth through non-literal language. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He was a carpenter. He never shepherded sheep. He said, I'm the vine. He was a man, not a tree. (laughs) Right? I'm the gate. He didn't have hinges. But what he was saying was literal truth, being communicated through non-literal wording. In the Bible, in the Hebrew world, numbers, when you listed numbers, it was not for the purpose of mathematical precision. Numbers symbolized and communicated things. That's why there are so many sevens and forties and thousands. The Hebrews would round off all the time. Because the number communicated something more than just numerical amounts. And there's so many examples, and particularly in books like Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah and others. Colors. Colors represent things sometimes, like symbols or ideas. Uh, on and on. There's so many things. There's literary motifs, and we interpret those. So we don't say, when somebody says, you take the Bible literally. No, we interpret it literarily. We don't interpret the Bible literally, we interpret it literarily. That means that sometimes we will read it, it will say an event happened, and we'll say that event happened. Sometimes we'll read it and we'll say this is couched in the guise of of a parable, or an epic, or or some other form of ancient Near East writing, and it's okay to read it that way. But you don't decide beforehand how you're going to do that. What we have to realize is the Bible came to us through this chain of interpretation, these these blanks. I think on your handout, there's some blanks with arrows. So you, if you want to take notes, but we have to remember, we have to remind ourselves when we're studying Scripture, that God is the author. All Scripture is God breathed, but in that process, God inspired and breathed into a human author, a Jeremiah, or a Moses, or a Peter, or a James. And that human author produced or oversaw the production or the compilation of an original document. They produced an actual letter to the Ephesians. Or they wrote down Torah and compiled wisdom from the ancient world into the book of Proverbs. Or whatever it is, whichever book you're looking at. And that original document was written to an original audience. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to who? The Romans, not the Wesleyan turns. Right? Paul did not write the book of Ephesians to my church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He wrote it to the churches in Ephesus. The book of Revelation was written to seven actual churches, not church ages that are symbolized by this and that. Seven actual churches. So we have to realize that. And then at the far bottom of this chain, and this is not to scale because the bottom arrow would be huge, at the bottom we come to the modern reader, you and me. We are the end of the chain. We are receiving the words that were written by the inspired authors in an original document to original audiences for the benefit of all of us. The Bible was not written to you but it was written for you. And that you is plural, by the way. The Bible was not written to me or to us. It was written for me and for us, however. That's why we can read God's words to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. And they can speak to us today in our setting in specific ways. But if we forget that they originally were written to the Hebrew people, then what we end up doing is turning the Bible into a fortune cookie. We pull it out and we say, Oh, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for hope and peace, and this is awesome, yay God. Not realizing that that was part of a letter written to slave exiles in Babylon who were thinking that God was going to send them home after overthrowing the Babylonians. And right after that, God says, No stay there, plant gardens, have children, pray for the peace of the people who are enslaving you, because you're going to be there for 70 years because of your sin. That reads a little different. That's not as hallmarky, so they leave that part out of the cards. But that's what the original letter meant. And if we read it and we understand that, then we can say, okay, how does my life match up to what the Israelites were going through? How does it differ? And How can I appropriate and take the message that God was giving them and see those principles at work in my life now? Not just, oh, this is a Bible promise to me. That's why I don't like those Bible promise books that they get. I just because they take these little promises out of their context and then you just get you get a fortune cookie. You know, crack it open, read the message. This is for me. But it's not. It's not. So we have to remember that. Doesn't mean the Bible doesn't speak. still speaks. And it doesn't mean God doesn't speak supernaturally. He still does. Secessionism, nonsense. God still speaks. The Holy Spirit still moves. He still applies scripture to our lives in supernatural ways. But he designed it to communicate to the people as a whole. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is culturally conditioned. It's written in the language of particular times and evokes the cultures in which it came to birth. It seems when we get close up to it, as though if we grant for a moment that in some sense or other, God has indeed inspired this book, he has not wanted to give us an abstract set of truths unrelated to space and time. He's wanted to give us something rather different, which is not, in our post-enlightenment world, nearly so easy to handle as such a set of truths might be. And T. Wright said this, and I think it's absolutely true. We want, Lord, just tell me what to do. Jesus' disciples, Lord, just teach us how to pray. Just give us a list. And instead, what did Jesus do? He gave him an example. We know he gave him an example rather than a command because that prayer is never prayed by any other apostle in the entire New Testament. But yet, that prayer is echoed in all of the prayers of the apostles throughout the New Testament. God gives us a written record that spans the millennia, a story that we enter into doesn't give us a systematic theology textbook or a set of rules, what to do, what not to do. Because he wants a living relationship. He wants us responsive to the spirit, not checking off do's and don'ts. Like we saw yesterday, he said, I will put my spirit in you, I will write my laws on your heart, I will move you to follow my decrees. You will be my people, I will be your God. The new covenant in which we live is where God takes his word, capital W and lowercase w, and puts it inside of us. Jesus dwells in our hearts, and his word speaks to us from within as we take it in. That's what God wants for us, and it requires relationships, and it's kind of messy, and it's not a neat checklist that we can understand. And sometimes we end up having to wrestle with God over what we're reading, but it's worth it. It is so worth it. This picture on the screen. The the faces are blotted out because these are um, missionaries. And those orange things, some of you may know this, those orange things are big mylar plastic balloons. And they're they're filled with helium or sometimes just hot air. Handwritten on those pieces of plastic is scripture. Or photocopied scripture in Korean. Because this is how people in North Korea get their Bibles. These are Christians, Chinese and South Korean Christians, filling up scripture balloons and floating them into North Korea. And the people in North Korea, the Christians in North Korea, find these because they're easy to spot. And they put them together and transcribe. That's where they get their Bible. We go to a bookstore or pull up on our phone, Amazon.com, and order the New Single Mother's Post Office Worker Devotional Bible for Teens. (laughs) Or the Policeman Who Hunts on the Weekend Bible for NASCAR fan guys with free wrench and socket. I mean, we... It's unbelievable the access we have to Scripture. It's scandalous the access we have to Scripture. You have more biblical data on your phone than everyone in the world had combined in the time of Jesus. This Bible in my hand is worth more than any village in the first century Judea could have afforded. This is undreamed of in terms of the biblical writers. And if you've ever seen a Torah scroll, you understand. They're massive. And yet, it's right there. It's leather bound, gold pages. It's even got a ribbon. All of these things that we have, and none of that's wrong. You don't have to throw your Bible out if it's, you know, or or guilt yourself. Oh, I just need to read a Xerox paperback. It's okay but realize that people literally lived and died so that you could have that. English Bible translators were strangled publicly, tied to posts with a thing that cranked around their throat until it crushed them because they dared translate the Bible from Latin into English. People died so that I could have this. And yet I'll say, well, I want one that has a pink cover. Or I don't like this wording. I need one that's, you know, I mean, just let let the Spirit speak to you on that. Yes, have a translation you read. Have a Bible you like. It feels good in my hands. It lays flat. That's great. You know, whatever. But realize that for the majority of Christians in the history of the world, that's closer to how they got their Bibles than what we have. So we literally have treasure in our midst, and it's there. We just have to dig. Digging's hard. It's not always fun. It takes effort. It doesn't always feel spiritual. But oh my gosh, it is. It really is. I, taught a, I, I teach a Bible study every week in Charlotte. It's uh, the owner of Roots Chris Steakhouse. He, he, he opens the restaurant and, and lets us come, in. he puts out a little buffet lunch for free and invites business people in the area. It's pretty, pretty sweet. Um, and, and when I took over teaching it about a year and a half ago, he said he had done time in federal prison for tax stuff, white-collar stuff, and, and in there he had this experience of like, man, <clears throat> I, I don't want people to go through what I went through. So when he got out, he said, I want to provide something For people, business people like myself, where they can be exposed daily or weekly, rather, to the wisdom of God. If I can just get them reading the Bible, that may save some people from experiencing what I experienced. And so we talked and I said, um, you know, we shared and I said, well, my my teaching, what I prefer, my ministry, is I, I prefer being a tour guide rather than a preacher. I prefer walking people through the text and pointing out some of the sites they may not have noticed, but letting the Spirit be the one who's actually applying it to their lives because it'll apply differently. And he said that'd be perfect. So, about a year and a half ago, I started teaching. We taught through the book of Genesis. Spent a year and a half every week, chapter in Genesis. They're all online. They're all, if you go to YouTube, Disciple Dojo, that's my page, you can, you can watch them because we record them each week. 30 minute sections for people on their lunch break. We just started two weeks ago, Exodus. And we're going to be in Exodus probably this whole year. And what I've seen is people, they come from these churches in Charlotte. And Charlotte's a mega church city. There's 700 churches in Charlotte. And they could, you know, like Stephen Fergus' churches in Charlotte and um, the, what's his name, used to be, big, praise, PTL, Baker, Jim Baker, all those guys. So Charlotte's got a long history of big churches. And, but they come from these churches and they sit and they listen to us read through Scripture and just talk about it. And they'll come back each week, each week. And it's not a series study or anything like that. It's just simply I'm reading through the Old Testament. And they say, well, what are you going to do after Exodus? Well, probably Leviticus. Keep on reading. And what it's doing is God is, is, is shaping, and I see it in the lives of these people. He's shaping, and he's forming their minds. He's renewing their minds because they are, they are learning his story. They're not learning stories like they knew growing up. They're learning his story Big picture. And the hope is that that will feed into their ministry, or into their lives, rather, and those that are in ministry feed into their ministries. That's at a steakhouse in the middle of Charlotte that's very swank, very upscale. I could not afford to eat there, ever, if it weren't free. Transpose that with, two weeks from now, I'm going to go to India for the third time. And myself and my senior pastor are going to go, and we teach workshops over there for village pastors. Networks of village pastors in the area called Orissa, where there was persecution back in 2007, 2009, and 50,000 Christians were displaced, churches were burned, people were killed. That's where we go. Th- that, those are our people, those are our friends now. And we go there and we teach village pastors. And they come by the hundreds. There's, at, at the one gathering, there's usually about three or four hundred. The other gathering, there's closer to maybe one or two hundred. And they come days. They travel like days by bus, by bicycle, by motorcycle. They sleep on the marble floor in the church on a blanket that they bring with them with no pillow to come for this leadership conference. Not for us, but because of their interacting with each other. It's how they do their church business and are overseed by their, their bishop or their elder or whoever. And we just get invited to come in, and we get to bring what they don't get there, which is the seminary-type teaching and pastoral teaching, how to do funerals, how to do weddings, the ministry of presence, how to deal with your family if you're in ministry, how to honor your wife, how to honor your children while you're preaching and not neglect them. I walk them through things like interpreting Genesis, reading Revelation. I'm going to do Romans this year. And, and they come by the hundreds, and they sit. Literally, they'll sit on the ground in a tent where we speak, and they'll sit for hours and listen to it. And the first time I went, I felt just like, what do I have to give to these people? I mean, we were talking to people whose families had been killed just a few years before because they were Christians. And radical Hindus came through and just burned the whole place down and, and, and literally killed some people. And I felt so discouraged. And India has some amazing spiritual darkness. 330 million demons inhabit that country in the form of Hindu gods. And the people that that worship them are so blinded by it. And it's just an oppressive, if those of you have been to India, you know it's just an oppressive feel spiritually. It can be. And so I was just feeling super discouraged, super depressed. Like, what do I have to contribute? I'm just telling them how to read the Bible. Blah, blah, blah. They're actually living it, they're dying for their faith. They're preaching their churches meet, oh, the tree by such and such. Yeah, that's their church. They just sit, stand under a tree and preach and then get on their bicycle, go to the next village and stand under that tree. That's their church. What in the world could I have to give these people? And just to see their face afterwards, when I just taught them on, basically shared this kind of stuff with them, they came up and were just like, we are so thankful. We don't get this. They knew the Bible, because they had memorized it, or they had read it, or they, you know, they, they, but they never had people that could tr- guide them and teach them in how to interpret it, how to dig and they were absolutely floored. And it was, it was so needed because I was feeling major beat-down discouragement. And, and, and it was a beautiful example of what Paul talks about, so that we may be mutually encouraged by one another, that he writes to the Romans. And that's what was taking place. So I say that because whether you're in a swank, posh steakhouse in the middle of uptown Charlotte or you're in Orissa, India on a dirt floor tent, this message speaks to people, and this message changes lives. And it starts by realizing what it is and approaching it for what it is rather than taking it for granted. So uh, I have no clue what time we're supposed to end. Is it, we do, do we go to 12? What time is it now? 15? Okay, sweet. So <clears throat> 15 minutes. Um, I always like to do, in a group this big, sometimes people are wary, but I like to do question and answer. Whenever I speak and teach, I like the interaction. Anything of what we talked about today or what we've covered, or or, even it could be something from yesterday if you're here, but any any questions that you guys have? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad, yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything that I just shared is like three sessions worth from my small group study, so I condensed and left a lot of stuff out. What I tell people: What translations should you use? I don't know Greek or Hebrew. What should I do? This is what I tell people: That, that spectrum that I've given you at the, your page. My advice, and this is just this is I, not the Lord, say to you: um, Find a translation in somewhere in that middle that you can read and understand, and that you like. You know, it could be NIV, it could be Holman, it could be um, you know whatever. New revised standard, it's fine. Pick one that you like, that you can understand, that you will read regularly. And let that be your base translation. That's what you read. Now, this is for study. This is not devotional reading, or I'm just talking about for study. Let that be your... If you're going to teach a life group, a cell group, or a small group, whatever you guys are calling them now, if you're going to lead something, if you're going to teach a Sunday school class, if you're going to do a, a women's group or a men's group, whatever, have one of those translations from somewhere in the middle that you rely on. Then... Get one from this end of the spectrum and one from this end of the spectrum. And have those be what you compare it to when you're reading. So you're reading in the Gospels the story of Jesus and blind Bartimaeus. Read it in your section. Read it in your translation. Understand it. Get it down. Okay, I know the story. I know what's going on now. Let me read it in these two translations. So get like the New Living or the CEB or one of those that's kind of more fluid Read it in that. Because they'll bring out meaning that if you're reading a more literal version, it may not, you may miss it. They'll bring it out. Or if there's a word that the translators differ on, they, they may have disagreements, then you'll probably see it footnoted in one or more of those translations. So, for instance, the one that we showed, the 1 Corinthians one, if you were reading that and you had uh, you know, the, the New Living and you had the New American Standard and you had an NIV, you would read that and, and the question that would jump out is, are we talking about daughters? Or are we talking about fiancés here? And you would compare, and you would see two of them say fiancé or, or something like that, and then one says daughter. So then you go, okay, there must be a reason that it went this way. Let me look. That's when you go to a commentary. That's when you go to a, a, a you know Bible Hub or Bible.com or any of these you know sites that are reputable. That's when you start to dig down that trail. So usually, using different translations, what it will do is it will give you the it'll it'll give you the voices of different Biblical scholars speaking into your mind, saying, this is how I translated this passage. And another one, this is how I translated it. And, and, and you'll hear, and then it'll give you a sense, and you'll be able to kind of look behind the text a little bit, getting back to what was originally written. Now, if you have a chance, since you're in school, some of you may have to take languages. You should totally take Greek and Hebrew. Totally. Totally. But if you can't, and not everybody can, and not everybody needs to, and you don't, want to, you don't buy into the Gnosticism, well, if you only knew the original, then you'd really understand the Bible. It's not about that. It's about saying the more you understand the original, the more you will get out of the Bible. But remember the first quote that I shared. All things needed for life and godliness are on the surface. It's for those that want to dig that you can start. So I recommend doing that. And the beauty of it now on your phone, get the Bible app. You have like nine different translations right there and you can compare it with on the spot. So that's a good question, though. Thanks for reminding me. On a related note, um, what are your thoughts on interlinear scripture? Okay, so interlinears. For those of you that don't know, an interlinear is basically, it takes the Hebrew or the Greek original, and it puts it on the line, and then underneath each word, it puts the literal rendering of that word underneath it. Those are great tools. I think they're really helpful. Now, sometimes if you have an interlinear and you're reading along in your own Bible, IV or whatever, and then you look at the interlinear and you go, how did they get from that to that? That's where it helps to realize how the languages work. There's figures of speech. There's word plays that are used. And so it's not, it's not foolproof. And it doesn't make you, ah, now I know the original. But it does help you. Interlinears are a great way to see into the text if you don't have, if you don't know original languages, or you don't have the original languages. So, yeah, I do recommend this. Actually, and in Bible for the Rest of Us, the, the, the PDF workbook that is free online on my website, but it downloads at the back. I have uh, an appendix of recommended study Bibles, recommended interlinears, recommended devotional Bibles, non-recommended Bibles. Um, and, and so we, we talk a lot about that. But, yeah, I do. I, and, and I can send that uh, or I can show you the link to that if you guys are interested. It's a good question. Yes, sir. So, um, Jesus referenced the Old Testament a lot. Yes. But you also said that you knew the Apocrypha. So, are there any instances in the Gospels where he's referencing the Apocrypha Testament? So, when Jesus, um, it, the 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 famous place where he says, I am the light of the world, he said that the Festival of Lights, that's Hanukkah. And Hanukkah happens in the book of Maccabees. Okay. So, yeah, Jesus, it, Jesus was... You know, the the way he couches himself sometimes, or the way the other New Testament writers write about Jesus as wisdom, or they equate him with with being the creator through whom all creation was made, in the Apocrypha, that description is usually applied to Lady Wisdom, Sophia, and it's an image or a metaphor of God's word, but in a Greek, Greco Roman type understanding of it. So there's a lot of ways. Ben Witherington, he's a Methodist uh, New Testament professor. Uh, he's written a book called Jesus the Sage, I think. I think that's the title. But anyway, it shows a lot of how Jesus and the apostles, it's not like they reference the apocryphal all the time. It's like that's part of their literary cultural heritage. So if I say something like, um, if, I, if I refer to some, if, you know, if I'm like, yeah, I love my phone, it's my precious, right? You guys all know that that's a geeky Lord of the Rings quote. Like I'm quoting Gollum. and every, I can just say that. And it will communicate that this is really prized and it can make me crazy and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that I think Lord of the Rings happened or that I think it's an authoritative text or anything. I'm just quoting it because it's part of our cultural heritage. That's a lot how the New Testament authors use the Apocrypha. So in Jude, when he talks about Satan contending for the body of Moses and Michael, Archangel, contending with Satan for Moses and Michael rebukes Satan and all that, that's apocryphal. It doesn't mean he's saying... You need to add that to your scripture, but it, he's, he's illustrating from a shared cultural literary heritage what they're saying. So reading the Apocrypha is helpful. The more you read it, the more you understand first century Judaism. The more you understand first century Judaism, the more sense Jesus and the New Testament writers make, for sure. Good question. Any, any other questions? Uh, in the back. Aramaic? (sighs) Not on me. Um, Do you know Hebrew? Okay. Hebrew first, because Aramaic is very similar to it. You can can pick up Aramaic easily if you have a good base in Hebrew. Um, Check on, uh, check Zondervan, uh, Christianbook.com, check Zondervan, look at uh, Aramaic grammars. And they should. Any ones that are done by Zondervan are usually pretty easy and pretty user-friendly. Yep. Um, oh, good question. Amplified Bible. Um, Amplified Bible is like... Uh, I, I don't have a great analogy, but I need to come up with one. User beware, because what the Amplified Bible does is when it comes to, you're reading along, and when it comes to a word that's theologically rich, it will just give you all the range of meanings that that word can have, which is good, because words don't mean one thing. They have what translators call a semantic domain, which means these are are the ideas that this word conveys, like the Hebrew word ruach. We don't have an English equivalent of ruach. We have three words, spirit, wind, and breath. But the Hebrew is all one word, ruach. So when you're reading Ezekiel and he's talking about the dry bones and then the wind was blowing and then the breath entered them and prophesied of the breath and the spirit came. In Hebrew, that's all one thing, ruach. And that's the wordplay and the image that's going on. We don't have that in English. So the good thing about Amplified Bible is that it can show you the semantic range of a word. The bad thing about Amplified Bible is that you can just do what a lot of people do is just pick and choose the one you like best and say that's what it means. So, you, so, so beware of that. Because words don't mean what they always mean. They mean what they mean in particular texts. In particular ses- sections or contexts. What they mean. So sometimes Paul will use the word "sarks" as flesh. And he means literally. Like our body. Sometimes he'll use it as a shorthand cipher for the sin entity. That we war with. Well, he doesn't mean it, it doesn't have both meanings in all those contexts. So that's the thing that I would say with Amplified or other Bibles like that, is it's good, but buyer beware. (laughs) It'd be towards the word for word, but it's not, because of how it's done, it's kind of off the line. Uh, it's kind of like Living Bible. Like, Living Bible is not a translation. It's, it's Ken Taylor paraphrased the ASV so he could read it to his kids at night. Uh, so it's a paraphrase of a translation. Um, so, but nobody uses Living Bible anymore. That was in the 60s and 70s. What other... yeah yeah. I what I would so here are some things that I think are really helpful when reading Scripture, that some Bibles do well and some do, don't do so well. Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry, in that it's not based on rhyme, and it's not based on meter. It's based on parallelism. So in Hebrew poetry, you'll have the author will say something. And then he'll say it again, but in a different way. Or he'll say one thing, and then he'll say the exact opposite of it, a contrast. It's called parallelism. Sometimes it'll even be tripart parallelism, so he'll say it three times, and each one will bring out a different nuance of the text. Good translations, helpful translations, show you that somehow by breaking up the English into those lines. So, like, for instance, some translations, like King James used to do it. Every verse, they'd make it a new paragraph. So, every verse was its own line. Not super helpful for seeing the flow of the text. Um, when you're reading a translation, every paragraph break, every punctuation mark, every subject heading, all of those are editor choices. None of that is original in the, in the text. There weren't even spaces between words in the New Testament, because parchment was at a premium. So it was, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him and not perish to have eternal life. All one word, all in capital letters. No spaces, no punctuation. So that's what the original texts are, and, and a translation that's, that, what translations try to do is break it up and, and so that the flow can remain in English. When you get to poetry, which is the bulk of the Old Testament, you really can see things in it if they preserve that. I'll give one example. Genesis chapter 1. Um, the first poem in the Bible. It says, So God created Adam in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's, it's a three-part tripartite thing. God created Adam. Adam, which texts render man, humanity, mankind, whatever, but it's just Adam, means person. God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And if you lay those three out, and you do ABC1, ABC2, ABC3, and you like match the parts up, you see that each one has God created humanity or man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And you see that what's parallel in each one is saying the same thing. And what it shows is that the image of God is male and female. Not man in God's image only. And women came later. But in the first poem in the Bible, Genesis 1, tripartite Hebrew parallelism, image of God equals Adam, male and female together. And that has big implications for how people read things like gender and things like the, the the relationship between the sexes and what happens later when sin enters the picture and that that partner relationship becomes a hierarchical relationship. Um, so that that's one example of how, and a, and a good Bible translation will put it in parallel and it will show you other things that a good translation will do There's some passages in the Bible. We talk about this in the Bible for the rest of us. We give a lot of examples and go through them. But sometimes there's things in your Bibles that were not in the original Scripture but got added or incorporated later through well-meaning scribes who wanted to fix what they thought might be a defective reading or something like that. Sometimes traditions that weren't originally part of Scripture got incorporated into the text as marginal notes. And then when that copy was given to the next scribe to copy, they thought, that that was part of the text, and it ends up in there. So there's a passage about the Trinity in 1 John that's not in the original. Um, There's a passage, there's an entire ending to the book of Mark, chapter 9. There's this whole story about picking up snakes and all this stuff. Mark never wrote it. And there's even a really well-known, well-loved story that every single one of us is familiar with that involves Jesus and a woman caught in adultery and you look in your Bible and it says, plain as day in your footnotes, this was not in the original manuscripts. And, and as for what you do with that and how you work it out, I'll, I'll let Clay deal with the fallout from that. <laughs> but, um, but what you do is you realize, oh, these footnotes are here for a reason. This actually tells me something about the text if I read these notes at the bottom of the page. Uh, and, and, let me, and let me make one more comment We're over time, so this is the last thing I'll say. Um, This is a study Bible. It's really thick. It's got a lot of supplemental stuff in it. All of that is added by people who want to help you better understand the Bible. None of it is inspired. So realize when you have a study Bible, all of the study notes, all of the supplements, all of the maps, even the locations on the maps... Sometimes they're best guesses. Sometimes they're what the editors wanted. And a good rule of thumb that I tell people is if you're looking for a study Bible and you want something to help you dig, get one that's done by a team rather than an individual because no one person is competent enough to know the whole Bible and be able to give you the study notes. And save your money when it comes to buying a Bible that's got someone's name on it. You don't need the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. You don't need the Billy Graham Peace with God Bible. You don't need the Beth Moore Bible. You don't need the John MacArthur. You don't need the John Maxwell. You don't need the Creflo Dollar. You don't need any of that kind of stuff. You really don't need Creflo. You don't need a Bible with someone's name on it because that's a marketing gimmick. What you need are the voices of scholars who come together across denominational lines and who pour their wisdom into the text, into the notes, to try to give you the insights that you would not normally have on your own just sitting and reading the text. So if you do that, if you keep that in mind, um, then I think your, your, your digging will be better off for it. Uh, three minutes over, so Clay, back to you. I don't know what happens now. <laughs>